You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc., Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of leading executives and employees at top companies around the globe who are on the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these stories will surely inspire business leaders around the world to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. I'm joined by Rich Lesser, Global Chair of Boston Consulting Group, and Alan Murray, CEO of Fortune Media. Now, sustainability is high on every company's radar at this crucial moment in the world's race to net zero carbon emissions by 2050, as we aim to keep the temperature rise below one and a half degrees. And of course, companies have a huge role to play with that. Why now, Rich? I would say that over the last three to four years that it became clear the impact that climate was having in the world. But it also became clear that despite the very positive sentiments around the Paris Accord in 2015, that the rate of progress that needed to be made wasn't happening. And we felt that we were in a unique position working across all sectors of the global economy, working in the public sector as well. And with just a very strong orientation to making hard change happen inside our clients. They are all on their own journeys. It differs by sector, it differs by company, but helping them to both understand why they need to do this and far more importantly, how to actually do it in productive and effective ways has been a huge area of focus and collaboration between the private and the public sector will be incredibly important if we're to move at the speed that we need to and we want to be a big part of that journey. It is so important for the public and private sectors to work together to collaborate on this gigantic global effort. And we will only get there through cooperation and collaboration. Alan, as CEO of Fortune, what personally drove your interest in this this whole area? My personal interest in this is more about Uh, human institutions, human organizations. How do you get people to organize themselves to take on a very complex long-term problem when there's so many (laughs) short-term distractions, opportunities, things to dissuade them? And look, that's the fundamental problem of civilization. How do we build great cathedrals? And this is the ultimate challenge in that regard. So I think that's what has fascinated me. Uh, The other thing is that I, I... come at this, like all things, as a journalist. I've been a journalist my entire life. I've only been a CEO for a couple of years. And I found that the business community, you know, they started getting a little serious about this in 2006, 2007, but that all kind of wilted in the last recession. Everybody said, oh, we have problems here on our bottom line. Let's forget about that environmental stuff and focus on the immediate problem. What's been so fascinating about the last two years is the exact opposite has occurred. The interest among corporations in addressing this problem has been rising. And then we got hit with the pandemic 
And instead of going away the way it did during the Great Recession, it actually accelerated. It intensified. Rich and I were at a a virtual meeting of CEOs that Fortune held in January. And a number of CEOs said that there's been an inflection point, a sea change in the commitment of business to this problem. So it does feel like this inflection point has occurred. Something is different. There's something in the air. Perhaps because we're building up to COP26, perhaps because I think we've all seen the dramatic impacts of climate change, and perhaps because corporations are realising that it will cost a lot less to deal with it now than it will to put off dealing with it in the future. It's not just the cost, it's the opportunity. I mean, if there was one thing that happened last year that caused everybody to focus on this, it was the spectacular rise of Tesla. And business people said, hey, this isn't just a cost, it's an opportunity. There's business to be done out here. So I I think that's a big, big part of it. Yeah, there has been this um, psychological change, hasn't there? This realisation that there are going to be winners out of the green economy and those who are the pioneers and those who jump on it fastest are going to win most. Rich, has that been something that's helped you to persuade people who aren't so sure about investing in the long term when they have so many short-term costs? One of the encouraging signs that goes slightly beyond climate, but certainly is relevant to climate, is the recognition of purpose as a driving force in successful businesses. And we've seen that for years coming out of the World Economic Forum, decades actually, but we've also seen that in the more recent past from the Business Roundtable and others. And I think as companies start to focus more on long-term shareholder value creation, it becomes increasingly clear that purpose is a part of that journey. And purpose means recognizing the interests and needs and responsibilities toward other stakeholders and Climate quickly rises to the top of that list because it touches everyone in very tangible ways. And so the combination of that rise, the impact of climate, and as Alan correctly points out, as people realize that when you're valued, particularly at the multiples companies are valued at today, it's really a belief about the ability to sustain growth in your business over the long term. If one's not part of a low-carbon economy, you're passing by quite big opportunities in many sectors of the world. Imagine a space that could have $3 trillion plus of investment for 30 years and not wanting to be a part of that in a fundamental way. We are not yet seeing the inflection point in terms of broad actions across many companies, across huge stretches of the economy. But we are now seeing genuine intent. The coming years will be essential to turn those plans and good intent into real action. I want to pick up something you talked about there, about purpose and the idea that basically we can build good companies. So companies that actually take into account sustainability for more than just the bottom line, but because they want to be better companies. Is that something that you see growing because of shareholder pressure or because people genuinely feel that purpose is important in their lives. People change behavior most because the context around them changes. And when context changes, their behavior alters, and then their thinking tends to come along with it. I think this is one of these situations. Companies are realizing that the hyper-transparency of today's world puts more emphasis not just on how they perform in terms of short-term performance, but how they're behaving in a much broader sense. And so you're right. Investors are putting more emphasis on this. Employees care much more about this. 
And when young people prioritize this in ways that it's not just words, but in the actions and the choices and who they interview with and the kind of jobs they accept. I agree with Rich. I think it's coming from employees. And it has to do with a fundamental change in the nature of business. You know, there's a research that's been done that shows if you look at the balance sheets of Fortune 500 companies in the 1970s, so 50 years ago, what you would see is most of the value is in stuff. It's in plants, equipment, oil in the ground, inventory on the shelves, physical stuff. If you look at the balance sheets uh, of Fortune 500 companies today, most of the value, but more than 85% of the value is not in stuff. It's in intangibles. It's in intellectual property. It's in the kind of things that come from having talented workers on your team. So the power that people have in companies is significantly greater today than it was 50 years ago. And they're using that power to push issues like this one. And this is something that we're all going to have this huge transformation this century. Um, I think we're just starting to get an idea of how much we're going to need to transform in everything from our energy systems to our water systems to the way we treat biodiversity and so on. These are huge global problems. It's almost too difficult to find out how one company can play their own role in this transformation. And it's almost overwhelming. Every company is going to have to make this transformation in one way or another, and everybody's at a different stage in this journey. What words of encouragement can you give? Have you seen how this can work better in some companies? I'd love to hear some stories. I mean, some of the technological challenges are just mind-blowing. We have this world that's built out of cement and steel, and how do you decarbonize cement and steel and those sorts of materials that use up so much, create so much of the carbon emissions? And what Rich has done is shown that if you follow those costs through the supply chain to the end consumer, they really aren't that big. And so the challenge, and this is what I would leave Rich to explain how we tackle it, the challenge is how do you get companies to work together across the supply chain so that we can organize ourselves to drive those changes, but also share the costs so that they aren't overwhelming? This is something that's absolutely key. And we will be following this throughout our podcast series. We will be looking at a lot of these issues, but really that's something very key that you just touched on that, Alan, that the systemic nature of all of this. Everything is connected. So a little tweak here affects another tweak there. You change the supply chain slightly, you've changed the carbon costs slightly. Rich, steel and cement are huge carbon emitters and we need to electrify industry. At the moment, they rely heavily on fossil fuels um, in their manufacture. They're great examples. Please tell us, how did you do it? The most exciting work I've seen on this is what Alan was just referring to. The work that the BCG team and the World Economic Forum team did late last year and early this year to look at global supply chains. And instead of taking a sector view of the world, take a supply chain view of the world, totally reframes how we think about this problem. To make it very tangible, take a car likely to be sold in 2030 the average price will be between thirty dollars and $35,000. And one says, how much more would it cost to make that car net zero? And it turns out that it's about $600. That's extraordinary. Right. And so we booked another meeting. They 
they went back and they prepared a much deeper review of the data for me. And when we went through it, it's striking because what you realize is, yes, the steel in the car goes up dramatically in cost, as does the aluminum, as does the plastic, as does the battery. But those cost components of a car are actually a very small fraction of the end price of the car. So even if there's a ton of steel in a car and it goes up dramatically, it adds $140 to the end cost of a car. The battery adds $70 to the end cost of a car, and so on and so on. And when you add it all up, assuming that we'll have relatively cheap renewable electricity, which we're certainly on path to do, and some of the other elements, you can model it through and find out it's not free, but People improve their sound systems for $600. They put better wheels on their tires for $600. This is a more manageable thing. And interestingly, they didn't just model the auto supply chain. They modeled fashion, construction, food, a whole set of different industries. And in sector after sector, that idea of a 1% to 4% increase in price at the consumer shelf, so to speak, suddenly seemed much less daunting than double-digit percentage increases in the hard-to-abate sectors. The challenge for business guy then is, but how do you organize across the supply chain to take advantage of that? It's an overwhelming cost for the steel company, but it's not an overwhelming cost for the car buyer. And so how do you share that cost over the supply chain? And I think this is the great challenge that we face in, in the coming years is how to organize ourselves to take advantage of that. So there clearly needs to be more coordinated effort from business. But at the same time, could government not do more to help drive this? It would be made much easier if we had a price on carbon. Making this happen would make an enormous difference. And it's why so many companies are actually actively stating in their policies, we need to have a price on carbon. The second thing is, organizationally and operationally, it's enormously complex because we have to retrain our procurement departments. We have to retrain our supply chain managers. We have to put different priorities in our marketeers and the products that they produce. We have to think about how multi-tiered chains, think about the auto industry. It goes back to the iron ore that's mined all the way through to the dealership and at every step to know how much carbon is being produced or emitted and be ready to pay more money for people who do well. But to know who actually is really delivering that is a massive operational and organizational challenge. And then finally, governments do need to make sure that the rules of the game are clear. You have to have trust in a system to make it work. We have a lot of trust in the financial parts of our economy because books are audited. You know if a company says something, you have some ability to verify that what is said is true. So we built mechanisms over a century or more to build financial trust in the economy. We need to build carbon trust in the economy as well. Those three vectors around operational and organizational change, ideally a price on carbon, and the sort of metrics and trust in the system to know what's really happening is happening. I think those are all fundamental big challenges looking ahead, but not insurmountable challenges. And Gaia, it's starting to happen. That's why I believe we are at an inflection point. I, I don't know about carbon pricing. I'm very cynical about governments on this front. But the other two pieces are really starting to happen. There's a coalition around metrics, and there's also a renewed interest in addressing the supply chain. We are at an inflection point in terms of the number of companies that are taking this seriously and making these commitments. 
they all recognize we cannot go as far or fast as we want without an effective partnership with governments. What businesses are worried about is governments trying to tell them rule by rule, this is exactly how you should operate in economies that are built on market dynamics, innovation, new technology. We shouldn't kid ourselves. There is genuine concern about the regulatory pressures that could come that will make it harder to make the smart moves, harder to make it work. On the other hand, things that government can do to provide incentives to build new technology can make it easier to build new infrastructure, such as a hydrogen economy, which we'll need for many industries to make the progress that we need. But essentially, we're all aligned. Government is aligned. The consumers are aligned. Business is aligned. We've seen already the first industries, the power industries, already starting that pathway towards electrification with the enormous rise of renewables and the financial sector is following. What are the other big sectors to keep an eye on? Who's leading this charge? I'm very pleased and impressed with how many of the leading automakers have taken this seriously. They're a big part of the economy. I look at some of the key consumer products companies. Uh, Unilever often stands out. I think Alan Joe putting their carbon reduction plan, their climate plan to a shareholder vote was uh, and getting, I think, 99%, some massive percentage of support from their shareholders. I think we're seeing bold elements, not just in how some of the upstream players are tackling it. For them, and remember, it's just so costly, but actually how some of the key consumer-facing downstream players in different sectors are taking this on. Not enough yet, but we're on a good path. And the inflection point comment on that, I think, is very, very real. And some sectors are going to find it a lot harder. Construction, for example, agriculture with fertilizers and so on. I wonder if you could highlight some of the issues uh, that you think are particularly important when we think about sustainability. When you're talking to your own employees, what are the issues that they are particularly interested in and that you are trying to drive change in? So when we think about sustainability, we talk frequently about ESNG, not just E that this combination of environmental, societal, and governance is the key underpinning for building sustainable businesses and, frankly, a sustainable world when you look at the wide range of challenges that we face. Interestingly, many years ago now, now almost four years ago, we published a report about total societal impact. And what we argued was that companies needed to be geared around both total shareholder returns, the long-term measure of value creation, and around total societal impact. But that interestingly, with a very deep analytic approach, we showed that companies that actually outperformed on total societal impact measures, as captured by the ESG metrics that were available at the time, actually outperformed in shareholder value delivery. But following BCG, three or four of the major banks took different methodologies, came to the exact same conclusions. And I will also note that on governance topics, when we look at how CEOs perform in role, interestingly, one of the ways to judge CEOs' success is look at what measures help drive long-term performance as a CEO. Improving ESG, whatever your starting point, is very positively correlated with a successful CEO tenure. Within ESG, the one that stands out the most is improving governance. 
when you improve governance, you make it much easier to tackle many of these other challenges that we're talking about. And companies can play a huge role in how they build diversity in their organizations and in their boards, how they take decisions, how they make sure that appropriate second order implications are considered. There's a range of good governance practices that make a big difference here. We're not talking about a greenwash here. We really are talking about long-term systemic change. It's really an investment in a better future for your company as well as for the world, and it can drive profitability. I think that's such a vital message, especially at this time when it can feel like a very big and expensive change for a company to think about doing things in a very different way to become greener, to become more diverse, to look at their supply chains in real detail and, and to be honest with themselves as well as uh, the outside world about exactly what their environmental impact is. Look, I spent most of my career covering government, right? And that's part of the reason, Rich, why I'm a little more cynical about this than you are. <laughs> I watched it up close for two and a half decades and I felt like I was watching in the U.S., a steady downhill slide in the ability of well-intentioned people to get together to solve public problems. In the corporate sector, it's very different. These people are pragmatists by nature. They got where they were by solving problems. It is in their nature to solve problems. And so you see a much more creative, much more pragmatic approach to dealing with this. I think at the end of the day, it comes down, as Rich has already suggested, to timeframes. In the short term, there are many things you can do that are destructive to the environment, destructive to society, destructive to your employees that will boost your profit. <laughs> we know examples of that. We see it all the time. I could go on for hours about those examples. But in the long term, all those interests start to converge. You're not going to be a successful company if we don't solve the climate change problem. You cannot be a successful company in a society that's breaking down because of massive inequality. You can't be a successful company when the battle is for talent and you're ignoring a substantial portion of the talent pool. So I do think at the end of the day, your focus is on the long term, not the short term. And humans are notoriously bad at looking at the long term. So this is actually a huge challenge. And I wonder, could you share a reason for looking long term? I'm not sure there's some magic thing here. I think you come in every day and you try to think about how do you make a difference for the lives of the people you have the privilege to serve, for the employees that work for you, for the world that you live in. And you know that if that's all you think about, it's not going to work. We all have to make next year work too. We all have to keep the trust of whether it's our investors or our customers or, you know, in our community. So a CFO I once worked with, we were discussing a quite important long-term investment that has turned out to be quite relevant in dealing with the COVID world. But he also said at the same time, we had to make a lot of short-term changes to improve because we didn't get to have a long-term without a short-term. And I think it's about having that balance. But unfortunately, until the relatively recent past, I watched a quite long period coming out of that last great financial crisis 11, 12 years ago, where people were feeling all that mattered was the short-term. They had gone through a shock. It was very scary for many. Would they even survive? Then they entered a world where people were sort of hunkered down to get through it. Then the activist investor community came along with a lot of pressure on near-term performance. And it wasn't that it was in balance. It was so tilted to the short term. And I think what we've witnessed now, 
partly through the shocks of the external environment, partly through the growth of other stakeholders in importance for companies beyond just the more short-term oriented investor base, I think we're witnessing a rebalancing between long-term and short-term. And when you rebalance that way, first, I genuinely believe you create much more value. And second, you suddenly realize things matter like the discussion we've been having, like ESG, like having purpose and having a positive total societal impact, those things matter quite a lot. The first thing you're taught as a new partner is to leave a legacy for the next generation. So Rich, why did you come together with Fortune to produce this podcast? I've watched Fortune and Alan put forward bold ideas and really use their journalistic platform to bring to the fore different ways of thinking about the changes we need to make in the world for a number of years now. In fact, we collaborated on the Future 50 together and the research on that several years ago, which is how to think in a longer term sense about what drives value creation. So I've watched you do that. And when I thought about what we were seeing in climate and how important it was to bring the stories to the fore, this podcast I'm so excited about because it's great to talk the theory of this. What people want to hear the stories. How do you make it work? How do you overcome the obstacles? What did you do to go beyond traditional thinking in your sector or your supply chain? And and I think this podcast can be very impactful for many people who want to do the right thing here, who know what they should do, but are working through how to actually do it and to really make it work. And when I was thinking about that, this collaboration just seemed like an ideal way to try to take the unique vantage point we have working with so many organizations around the world and the unique platform that Fortune brings in everything it does to try to help move things forward in this just absolutely critical space. Sustainability is is, uh, an issue that's been talked about for some years and we've made some progress towards it. But now we have this huge urgency to get to net zero by 2050 if we're going to meet our climate commitments. There seems to be some sort of change in the air. Corporations seem to be taking this seriously. What's changed? Why has this become so urgent now? I observe that change as well. I totally agree with you. I would say that Some of it is the recognition after the Paris Climate Accord that while the accord itself was a big step forward, it wasn't putting us on the path we needed to be on as quickly as we needed to be on it. And many parts of the global community have recognized that. Businesses and governments, but also uh, citizens and investors and others. And that's put more pressure on organizations to act. And it's made Companies, I think, realize they need to get going on this at a faster pace than we have. And I think for each of us, it's what do we do ourselves? I think if we don't get on this path soon, we will not get anywhere close to where we need to be to be in a ideally a 1.5 degree world or at least a less than two degree world if we don't get going. And there's a role for all of us. There's a role for the individual, a role for government, a role for the public sector, There's also a role for the private sector. Why should corporations be leading this change? I I think companies are starting to really deal with the effects of it right now. I mean, if you look at extreme weather events, if you look at wildfires, if you look at water shortages, uh, they're beginning to see the costs on the one hand. They're also beginning to see the opportunity. I mean, look at what Tesla has done over the course of the last two years. And people say, wow, this isn't just something we have to pay to fix. This is something that's going to create new business opportunities that we want to be a part of. Just to build on Alan's comment, 
in a world where we need to invest $3 trillion plus a year over the next 30 years, if you're a business leader looking for long-term growth, to think that a part of your agenda shouldn't be able to be a part of that massive investment in the global economy that will happen would seem actually quite short-sighted right now. And I think more and more business leaders don't necessarily know exactly how to do it, but they really recognize that they need to do it and they need to do it soon. A lot of the focus on climate really started in Europe and has now moved to others of the most developed economies in the world. But the biggest challenges will sit in many of the emerging economies of the world without necessarily the economic strength to be able to afford many of the investments that required with huge pressures to improve the lives of their citizens, pull people out of poverty and so forth. And so it will be very important as we think about how we're going to make as much progress as we need to think about how the entire world helps the entire world move forward, not just the the uh, wealthiest countries in the world taking big steps forward. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's, it's, it's systemic. Systemic problems, systemic issues, uh, which is why it's so interesting, of course, and so challenging. Thank you, Rich, and thank you, Alan, for joining me. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. Join us next when we'll be exploring nature-based solutions to restore damaged environments from forests to coral reefs.